Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Uh, When I was at Bible College, I had this lecturer who was not only very popular, but also an extremely good preacher. Every year he ran an internship and lots of students would apply to be able to sit under his tutelage. And, um, And you could always tell who the interns were that year because they would get a run at preaching in chapel and they would all have exactly the same mannerisms, which was something like this. They would all have the same mannerisms. They would all have the same intonation when they spoke. They all were like little versions of this lecturer. And the reason for that is that we learn through imitation. We learn through imitation. They had picked up this lecturer's intonation and hand gestures because they were learning from him. Uh, Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard said this, Christ came into the world with the purpose of saving the world but also with the purpose of being the prototype, of leaving footprints for the person who wanted to join him, who then might become an imitator. Or as John puts it in his, in his letter, in chapter 1, verse 14, in his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Our Jesus, Jesus Christ, did the same thing for us when he was incarnated, when he became a human. He came to become a prototype for those, who, those of us who would join him to learn life from him, to learn a new way of being human by following in his footsteps. And today I want to ask this question as we bring this Wiki Church series uh, to a close. If Jesus moved into the neighbourhood, if he made his dwelling among us, if he embedded himself in our world? What does it look like practically today for those of us who are his followers to be imitators of him, imitators of the one who set up his home in our midst and lived his everyday breathing, walking around life amongst us? Well, if you haven't caught it already or if you're with us for the first time today, what does that look like? It looks like a wiki church, of course. A wiki church. If you're not sure, if you haven't caught it yet, what is a wiki church? It's getting out into our neighbourhoods, out in front of people, rather than trying to get people and drag them into church to hear our ideas. Why? Because we're living in an age when people are far more interested in who we are as people than they are in our ideas. A wiki church is like Wikipedia. Uh, it's, it's taking the church open source away from reliance on a few experts uh, to, a, to a, a way of operating in which everybody can be a contributor. Open source Christianity is like the early church that busted out through the countryside because of persecution in Jerusalem where it started. Uh, it's ordinary people taking the extraordinarily powerful message of Jesus and weaving it into the fabric of society into the arts, into business, into politics, into sport, into education, into healthcare, into science, into our everyday neighbourhoods. That's what a wiki church is. Can you imagine if we could be a church that equipped 400 neighbourhood missionaries to weave the power of the gospel through the fabric of Sydney? Can you imagine what our city could look like? how it might change, how it might be transformed by the power of the gospel as it's woven through the fabric of society. 
In this series so far, we've said that in order to hit the right target of making disciples who make disciples and of seeing heaven start to unfurl in our city, we need to adapt to this new thing that God seems to be doing among us. And so we're beginning to call 80% of our church family into connection groups for next year so that together we can learn what it means to love people really well, to live as good neighbours, to weave the love and the power of the gospel into the fabric of society at every level. As Jesus put it, it's a little bit like yeast worked through some dough that's for bread. It's a little bit like a tiny seed that's planted and over time, slowly but surely, grows and becomes the largest of plants. This is going to mean a new priority for us of living on call, a new proximity to our neighbours, and it's going to mean adopting new practices. It's going to mean that when you feel the busyness and the meanness of Sydney frustrate you, You allow that to send you in as a force for good rather than allowing it to propel you out. It's going to mean that people are not projects, that our job is care, not conversion, and that we live out a lifestyle, not a church program. And it's going to mean that we must do this together, do this on your own, and you look like a wacky Christian, like a dancing Dave. Does anyone else wonder whether Sam was a dancing Dave and that's why he knew those moves so well last week? I don't know if it was just me, but anyway. Do it on your own. You look like a, you look like a wacky dancing Dave Christian, but do it together. And isn't there something so attractive about a community of people living alternate lives of love and compassion? Now the, reading, the reason that our reading uh, that Annie read us was from Thessalonians today is that in the Thessalonian church, we have a community of believers uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to. Um, and they are a wonderful case study in the power of learning through imitation uh, to live lives that resonate the gospel and arouse curiosity in the world around us. As the Thessalonians imitated Paul, who imitated Jesus, people started to see that there was something different about them. They started to see that there was something going on in these Thessalonian Christians without them even needing to say anything about it. It was open source Christianity. It was everyone being a contributor, everyone enabling the good news of Jesus to spread out without it needing to go through the experts. And so as we lead into some practices of neighbouring this morning, I want us to learn from the Thessalonians who imitated Paul, who imitated Jesus. Now to set the scene, uh, Thessalonica, the city where the Thessalonians lived, was a large port city. It was uh, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire um, and it was the capital of Macedonia. It was a port city on a sheltered harbour which made it an ideal naval station and it was situated along a highway that connected a couple of big ports on the Mediterranean Sea. So you can see it's quite a strategic place, quite a, um, it it had a large export trade and it was an important and prosperous city. As a result, you've got lots of wealthy Romans and Jews living there because of the commercial advantages of the city. So in summary, you might say there are a lot of people in this city for commercial advantage, for their own advantage. It's a big, harbor, a big prosperous harbour city, uh, not unlike our own. 
So the Apostle Paul arrives there on his second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17, tells the story of how the Apostle Paul travelled around and started churches in different places. Uh, And when he gets there, he establishes a community of believers in Thessalonica uh, by preaching the good news of Jesus in the Jewish synagogue for anywhere from about three weeks to three months. Um, Now what happens is that some of the Jews get really jealous of the influence that he's starting to have and basically they get together a mob, they start a riot uh, and Paul is forced to flee the city for his own safety. Uh, So there's this hostile reaction to the good good news of Jesus in Thessalonica. Uh, But despite that, there's this community of the people who had believed Paul's message, who band together um, and, and this community of believers takes root and it starts to flourish. Now, with a hostile reaction to the gospel around them, uh, why is it that their community starts to flourish? I think it's what it says in chapter 1, verse 6. They become imitators of Paul and Jesus. They learn from the Apostle Paul as he settles down in Thessalonica to practice his trade of tent making, uh, probably out of a rented stall. He lives among the people. He just has conversations with Jesus. As his customers come in, he chats with them. Just the gospel spreads through everyday relationships as he goes about his everyday work. And we get lots of insights into the kind of life that the Apostle Paul lived, uh, that's the life that the church emulated. Um, These are some things that he says in Thessalonians. We lived among you for your sake. We dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. We're not trying to please people, but God. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. It's a challenging one. How holy, righteous and blameless we were and how they were encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And so then, if that's the kind of life that the Apostle Paul lived among the Thessalonians, what kind, of, what kind of church does he leave behind in his footsteps? Well, Paul is delighted to report back this open source news that has travelled about the Thessalonian Christians. And he's so excited about it. He says that he's heard about your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's heard that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. He heard how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and encourages them that your daily lives may win the respect of outsiders. This was a Christ-like, spirit-led, kingdom-seeking, generous, hospitable community living in the midst of a city that's out for its own advantage. Can you imagine why living lives like that in that setting rang out and spoke so loudly of a different reality that was going on within this community? The good news of Jesus is more like the operation of a power than the presentation of a message. And so through the way the Thessalonians lived their lives, they became, in the words of the great John Stott, like a telecommunication satellite which first receives and then transmits messages. Their lifestyle that embodied the good news of Jesus was evidence that something otherworldly was going on for these people. And their neighbours became curious. It was like, uh, this is John Stott again, this holy gossip started to spread about them. And people would say, have you heard what's happening to so-and-so? 
Something extraordinary is going on in Thessalonica. A new society is coming into being with new values and standards characterized by faith, love, and hope. And so, for us in Sydney, a city that is not unlike Thessalonica, where people are out for their own advantage a lot of the time, how could we love others so well that they catch a curious glimpse of the power of the gospel that is being woven into the fabric of our society by 400 neighbourhood missionaries who are living in the power of the Holy Spirit? What would that look like for us? Now, for those of you who um, are sick of all talk and no action, here are some practical steps for us to take hold of. Uh, Here are some handles on this truth for us to grab onto. Carl Jung said, you are what you do, not what you say you'll do. And Aristotle went one step further, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So what are some habits? What are some practices uh, that we can adopt so that following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus, of Paul and of the Thessalonian church, we can be intentional about loving our neighbours? I've got four for you. These are from a book called uh, The Neighbouring Church. Stay, pray, play and say. Stay, pray, play and say. Number one, stay, which is all about loving people by getting to know them. It probably doesn't come, of, doesn't come as any surprise to hear that loneliness is rife in our country. Loneliness is rife in our city. They say that one in three Australians suffers from loneliness. Uh, loneliness is as much, as, uh, as much of a threat to longevity these days as obesity is. Uh, it's the next big public health threat. It actually has health implications for us, and one in three Australians are suffering from loneliness. What change might we see in people's lives and in our society if we simply got to know people? I've heard it say of Christian mission that staying is the new going. How might it change the way that we see ourselves as missionaries, ones sent by God, if we saw ourselves as intentionally where we already are, intentionally part of our neighbourhoods and our streets, intentionally part of our families, intentionally part of our workplaces? You know what happens when we're not intentional, right? Nothing. You know what happens to relationships when we're not intentional? Superficiality. You don't get to know anyone. That's the default for us. You know, people walk around these days, we've got our headphones in, uh, we don't make eye contact with the person walking uh, the opposite way to us in the corridor at the office. Uh, We walk past people in the car park, we walk straight past people in the street. Um, Back in the day, we'd sit on our porch at the front of our house and it was very easy to have a conversation with the next door neighbour because they might be out mowing their lawn or they might be coming in and we're hanging out on our porch. It's very easy to connect. Now what happens? Drive up to your driveway, put the roller door up, in you go, put the roller door down, you hang out and the back of the house, which is the way that the houses are designed these days, that the living area is usually towards the back of the house rather than at the front. And so d- design and culture and architecture is all working against us and moving us towards a kind of culture of disconnection. You know, I live in, I live in a semi 
And in the back of our place, we've got this courtyard with a roller door and our next door neighbours, who we share a wall with, uh, they've got the same, their roller door is right next to ours. And, um, and I catch myself sometimes, if I can hear that they're leaving, if I hear their roller door going up, I thought, oh, I might just wait. Just feel, I don't really feel like talking to anyone today. Just wait till I hear them go and then, then I'll be safe and then I can go out, as opposed to really what I should be doing. Say, so, oh, I can hear them. I'll go out. I might be able to find out how they are. I might discover a need that they have that I might be able to meet. You see how our mindset and intentionality can work against us in this? It dawned on me as I was preparing for this message that if our goal is to love our neighbours, how can we do that meaningfully if we're not connected in any meaningful way with people? If we don't know their name and their stories and their hurts and their hopes, how can we meet a need if we don't know what the needs are? How can you know what a need is unless you take the time to get to know people? How can you meaningfully love someone you don't know? Someone said this, aim at nothing specific and you'll hit nothing. Some practical things we can do, frequent the same cafes, hang out in the same local gathering places, choose to be locally connected, stop by people's desks at the office for a chat, strike up a conversation in the kitchen at work. When I was working in the corporate world, my, I had this little policy for myself that if I was making a cup of tea and someone came into the kitchen who I didn't know, I would always introduce myself. I just had this one line which was something like, um, hi, I don't think we've met before, I'm Emily. Pretty straightforward, very simple. And then I'd get to meet people around the office and over time start to be able to build relationships. Uh, but it takes intentionality. So that is stay. Number two, pray, which is all about loving our neighbours by, you guessed it, praying for them. Why is this important? Well, we need God's help in navigating good neighbouring. As I, If it were just up to me, this is not going to happen. As you can, I've already shared with you, it's not going to fly well if I'm just trying to avoid people when I hear them leaving, uh, leaving the house. Uh, this, we need God's help to help us with this. We need his wisdom and his discernment. We need him to open up opportunities for us to connect with people and to take them. Uh, we're partnering with him on his mission after all. Firstly, prayer changes us to become better neighbours. You know, God loves your neighbours. All the people who cross your path, God loves them. And we need to start praying for praying that He would shape our as we pray for Him, pray for them, He shapes our hearts and our eyes to love and see our neighbours as He sees and loves them. So that we can practically love them as He does. Prayer sets our hearts on what God desires and it fills us with his strength and his love. It means that we can engage with the world in those tricky situations where we might feel like, oh, what, where, which way do I go ethically? What, how do I balance living my Christian faith in this place that might feel like, oh, should I be here? Should I not be here? What's going on when I'm engaging with the world? And in those, in those difficult situations that Sam talked about last week or the week before, it means that we can set our heart on what God desires and keep our heart in tune with him and help us help, helps us to navigate that balance. And it keeps us in tune with his spirit. The Thessalonian community were a community that were empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, have a look at chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, and chapter 2, verse 3. Our prayer opens opportunities for us to be good neighbours. I remember on so many occasions driving to work and praying, God, would you open, an, open a door today for me to talk to somebody about you or have a conversation with someone or have a meaningful conversation with someone, help someone today. And I don't want to say 100% of the time that happened, but it was, became a bit of a joke that every time I prayed that God would open up an opportunity for a conversation with someone. And so it got to the point that if I was having one of my moments where I didn't want to talk to anybody, then I'd be like, oh, I'm not quite sure I should pray.
pray that today because if I pray that, the Lord is definitely gonna open, a, open an opportunity for me to talk to somebody. Um, so just try it, see what happens, see what, I don't know that there's any guarantees on that, but I know that God loves to, loves to answer that prayer. And it's an amazing how much of an impact that can have on building relationships with people. Uh, Prayer deepens our relationships with people. I have this friend who um, one time twisted her ankle and I asked if I, she's not a Christian, asked if I could pray for her and she said, yes, you can. Anyway, so I prayed for her and miraculously God healed her on the spot and she was able to drive up to Newcastle the next day without any pain and her ankle's been completely fine since. Since then, which is just incredible, and I'm just so grateful to have been able to be part of that and see that happen. Since then, when she's, she's been going through a hard time, she rang me up and said, Emily, I need you to come around and do a blessing on me. <laughs> By which she means, can you come pray for me? Because of what had happened last time. Prayer opens up spiritual opportunities with people. It deepens our relationships with people and just can really open things up. And people are so much more happy to be prayed for, I think, uh, than we might expect just to offer to pray for someone um, can be a really powerful thing. And what can we do in our everyday lives to start to cultivate it? It might cultivate this. It might just be setting aside time once a week to sit with God, not to try to achieve anything with him or try to be particularly productive with him, but just to sit with him, to know his love for you, to get on the same page as him, um, and just to receive his, receive his love uh, for you, just to simply be with him. It might be starting to pray small, specific, answerable prayers, like, God, could I be leaving the house at the same time as my neighbours today? <laughs> that kind of thing, specific prayers, answerable prayers, and even being willing to be the answer to your own prayers. Well, that is pray, stay, pray. Thirdly, play, which is all about loving our neighbours by offering hospitality. Good neighbouring, as we know, as we've been finding out, is about loving our neighbours. And at the heart of love is the spirit of giving. People are crying out in our city for connection and for family. There are so many people in our city who don't have family living here. And we as God's people have so much to give. And I think two of the most powerful resources that we can offer people is our time and our homes. Would we be willing to open up our calendars and to open up our homes to people? In a lonely, busy city where nobody seems to have time for anybody else, how beautiful would it be to have a community of people who are willing to open up their calendars and their homes to other people? I went to Berlin a few years ago on a study tour which was looking at the way in which Christians in Europe are engaging with a post-Christendom culture, finding ways of engaging with people who are, who are post-Christian, who, don't know, the, who don't, know the, don't know the Christian story. Uh, and we went to this one people's house and they, in their words, Berlin is a really cold and suspicious city. And so their ministry there is a ministry of hospitality. They have an open home. And I don't know that I have ever walked I've never been anywhere else in my life that feels more like heaven than walking into their house. I felt like I couldn't do anything that would exclude me from this place. I couldn't do anything that would, I couldn't feel judged or kicked out or whatever. It was just the most beautiful sense of belonging and acceptance and love being in their home. They were babysitting a baby grand piano for a German opera singer. And um, and they have something like 32 uh, overnights a week people staying with them. This is their full-time gig, by the way. They don't have other jobs. Um, They have something like 64 meals a week with people. And I thought, oh man, like that is hospitality. That is hospitality. 
the spiritual ability to make a stranger or a foreigner, someone away from us, feel like they're part of the family. Now, it might not be having 30 people a week to come to stay in your house, but when was the last time you had someone at your dinner table? Were they just like you, or were they the kind of people that Jesus shared meals with? The outcasts, people who don't go to church. Were they, uh, you have 21 meals in a week in your calendar. It's not adding anything else to your calendar. What if you just opened up three of those to share with other people? You just opened up, that, opened up your schedule in this way. Uh, these writers, Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford, say this, which I love. Sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. <laughs> if every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. You know, God has blessed us so much, and he has blessed us to be a blessing. And something I've been challenged by this week, and I want to challenge us with, is this. Are you treating your home uh, like a bucket or a pipe? Are you treating your home like a bucket or a pipe? Are you keeping it for yourself or are you allowing God's blessing to flow through you so that others may be blessed? Now, I think that we hesitate in sharing our homes in particular for a few reasons. As Sam identified, it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable having people in your space. Secondly, I wonder if we're more concerned with the impression that our homes give about us than we are with people experiencing hospitality through them. We're so used to managing people's impressions of us by the car that we drive into the office car park or by the way our desk looks or by the way our house looks from the outside uh, or by our Facebook page or LinkedIn profile or whatever it might be. It's more difficult to manage someone's impression of you when they're in your home. You might not have cleaned this week. You might have clothes hanging up. You might have only very basic uh, food in the pantry. Does that exclude you from the call to hospitality? I don't think it does. Someone said, if we only share meals with friends when we're excellent, then we aren't truly sharing life together. I love going to people's houses when they've got their clothes hanging up because I feel like this is their real life. When I bring up my friends, particularly my friends with young children, and I say, we'll be like, let's find a time to hang out. They'll be like, you can come round, but the house is a wreck. I'm like, awesome, great, that's your real life, that's what I want. I don't want some tidy, fake house. If I know that's not like that usually, just invite me into your real life and then I feel like we have a real life connection. In the words of the late Leonard Cohen, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Thirdly, I think that we can be reluctant to offer our homes as resources because we see them as our refuge. Isn't that a big one for us in our busy city? our, Our homes are our fortress, our getaway, our haven, our retreat. That's how we, how we refer to our homes, isn't it? Can I ask you, if your home is your refuge, what does that mean for your relationship with Jesus? Because the last time I read the Bible, God is referred to as our refuge. Isn't Jesus your refuge? 
That's a big challenge for me this week as I've prepared this. If I think my home is my refuge, what does that mean for what I think of God? What does that mean for my relationship with Jesus? So stay, pray, play, finally say, which is all about loving our neighbours by sharing Christ with them. You know, what happens when you stay, pray and play is that your life becomes questionable, by which I mean people start to notice that you're different and people start to ask you questions. Now, we're not all gifted evangelists, but we can all conduct our lives in ways that arouse curiosity in those around us about why and how we live these alternate lives of love and compassion. You know, in the fourth century, uh, the Christians' uh, acts of kindness and forgiveness and hospitality were so stunning that the emperor felt threatened and feared that they would take over the empire. And so he, he decided to launch this campaign to outlove the Christians. That's how stunning their witness was in their love and their hospitality. Uh, the emperor was afraid they would take over. <laughs> When people ask you what's going on, why you live the way you live, how you can live the way you live, you don't need to be Jesus' salesperson, you know, in the way that you respond to them. Just need to give your testimonial of what he's done in your life. Just tell them what he's done for you. You don't need to try to win them, just love them. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life and what your experience has been and let God do the rest. So there you are, four habits, four practices to help us love our neighbours really well. Stay, pray, play and say. And as we get intentional about learning to live this out next year, uh, there are two things that we're going to need. The first one is a personal experience of the love of God. We need to know God's love for us personally if we're going to be vessels of his love into the world around us. Can I ask you this morning... Do you know God's love for you? What is your experience of his love like? When was the last time you sat still long enough with him for his love to become real to you? Secondly, we're going to need each other. We need to do this together. We need accountability. We need to ask each other how it's going. We need to go to parties together. We need to introduce our friends to each other. We need to spur one another on. That's why we want 80% of our church family to be in connection groups next year so we can do this together and spur one another on. We will need one another in this. So as we close, let me ask you this. If we were to weave sacrificial love, love like Jesus loved, through the fabric of society in Sydney, can you imagine what our city could look like? If we each resolved to stay, pray, play and say, how might people's lives be a bit brighter and a bit more whole and a bit less lonely? How might business function a little more justly? How might people be a little bit more connected? I think we might just start to see our cities start to look a bit more like heaven. As together we choose to imitate Jesus and stay, pray, play and say, getting to know other people, our neighbours, praying for them, extending hospitality to them and sharing Christ with them.
Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.